Hey everybody, welcome to episode 15 of Finding Extraordinary. You know, I don't look like a regular designer. Like I don't look like the lady who decorated our house, right? With like her popped collar and her hairsprayed hair. Like I say bad words and I wear ripped jeans and I think it's okay to have a vase from Target sometimes. And I was like, you know, <laughs> what if this isn't gonna work? Like I don't fit in this box. And she was like, you know, Kate, what other people think of you is none of your business. And I was like, holy shit, that was like so incredibly like brilliant when you think about it, right? Like, and that is so applicable to literally every single person, every single moment in the world yeah. is like, just you do you and the rest will fall into place and you will carve a niche for yourself and then people will respect you and then that niche will be your niche and that will set you apart. And so you know, remembering that what other people think of me is none of my business is, is essentially like giving no fucks, right? My next guest is someone who has built their business from the ground up. And they've built that business in such a way that now, when she has to travel for work, her and her employees only fly first class. My next guest is Kate Lester. And she is the owner of Kate Lester Interiors, which has been featured on HGTV, Martha Stewart, House and Home, The Wall Street Journal, The Zoe Report, and many others. Kate is the ultimate badass boss, and in this episode, we get straight to business. Kate shares her background and tells us her story of how she went from working in corporate America to quitting that job and building her own interior design firm. She also tells us about how some of the failures in her business have helped her become a more lucrative and savvy businesswoman today. If you are an entrepreneur, a business person, or just someone who wants to learn more about how to do things right and build something on your own, this is the podcast for you. Without any further ado, let's get it started. truth is, no one is born extraordinary, but everyone has extraordinary inside of them. It just has to be found. Welcome back to Finding Extraordinary. I am your host, Seth Markson. Each and every episode will deliver an exciting guest or message that will expand your mind and provide insight that will help unlock the secrets to finding your extraordinary. Thank you for spending some time with me. Let's get it started. Kate Lester, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Seth. Very excited to be here. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm very happy to hear that. Um, hopefully, at least equally excited, if not more. I am uh, so excited to talk to you because um, you were referred to me by one of my good friends, Lori, who is one of your good friends. Yeah. And then also I told my girlfriend about you. She's like, what? You're talking to Kate Lester? That is <laughs> awesome. That okay. is so cool. So um, I hope also, I live up to the hype. We'll see. Uh, yeah, you definitely will, especially because we, we had that previous conversation before we even started the podcast. And right after that, I called Lori. I was like, Lori, I am so excited to, to record the podcast with Kate, like you fired me up and it was only like five minutes okay. of chatting. So um, I'm really excited to dive deep here. Um, I think first to get started, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and what you do. Sure, sure. So um, I grew up in the South Bay, so I'm totally a local South Bay kid. I uh, went to West Warren's High School and um, I knew for sure that I was going to get out of the South Bay and I was going to be really, really rich and I was never going to come back. <laughs> and none of that happened. I currently live in Redondo Beach. Uh, I may be like comfortable, definitely not really, really rich, um, but I'm doing great work. I'm happy. Um, you know, you learn a lot of things along the way. Um, I, I went to college at USC for business. I was going to be a really important business lady and make a, a bunch of money. And then I decided that when I worked in corporate America, I actually hated it there and that I knew it wasn't right for me. So that's when I decided to go back to school 
and become an interior designer. And uh, that's what I'm doing now. And now I have an interior design studio in Hermosa Beach. And um, two years ago, we expanded and opened a retail store and a retail brand called Kate Lester Home. And that is also in Hermosa Beach. Incredible. And I, you actually have, you lay that out perfectly on uh, your blog on, uh, on Kate Lester Interiors. And it's a really fascinating read. It's actually really inspiring. Um, can you kind of walk me through what it was like for you, like in your, in your mind when you were, you were choosing to completely switch your career? Totally. Totally. So, I mean, I grew up in, in a really, I would say like supportive environment. My mom is kind of like a hippie who dresses really well. So I don't know <laughs> hippie, but her vibe is like a hippie and she was like, okay, cool. You want to change your mind? cool. And so she was like, that's so great. I'm happy for you. I'm not paying for it. And I was like, okay, so super. So it was one of those things where I'd always grown up where with my mom kind of saying like, there's no mistakes, just opportunities. So I didn't really look at it like, oh, I made this huge mistake by going to USC for business. I just sort of looked at it as like, okay, I changed my mind. Now what do we do? And I knew that if I was going to be an interior designer, it was sort of the same way I'd lived the, the whole first half of my life, which was I'm going to be the best interior designer in South Bay if I'm going to do it. So I had to do it right. So I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to get architectural training. I wanted, I didn't want to half-ass it. I don't half-ass anything. So it was one of those things where I just sort of poured myself into it and realized that it, it was going to be all or nothing if I was going to go into doing this. Um, and I did, and I had to bartend a night to pay for my schooling because my parents are super supportive, but only for one college experience, obviously. Um, and so, you know, it was super humbling being bartending after you have a degree from a really prestigious business school and knowing that you're probably not gonna use that for what you thought. Um, and then kind of going through the process of like working for designers who some of which didn't even have college degrees and I was like taking out the trash and getting coffee and you know silently being like I could do all your fucking taxes you know like so I think it's it's it was super humbling is like the best way to describe it but if you keep your eyes on the prize you just absorb and learn. And I knew that I had to do all of that and pay my dues just the way I had done in like corporate America. Do you think that has helped you become uh, as successful as you are? The, like doing the, the little minute things that most people don't want to do. Of course. Um, I, I had a friend whose family was like the the people who started in and out and even the son had to like start in a restaurant, like taking out the trash. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was really cool. And so now whenever one of my girls complains about one part of their job, I'm like, shut the fuck up. I've already done that. Like I've done <laughs> that. So I know that you can do it. And then you don't, when we hire someone beneath you, you won't have to do it anymore. But like every, every part of your business is a learning experience and you have to understand every aspect of your business and your industry in order to be an expert. I have to know how my sample library is categorized. I have to know, you know, about what kind of accounts we have and where our sales tax money goes. And, you know, I don't have to be, I don't have to do it all, but I have to know a little bit about each part of my business, even like the software and, you know, everything. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think it, it does help. Plus like taking out the trash keeps you humble and it makes you enjoy the milestones as you achieve them. Um, with, with that all being said, what, uh, what were the things that when you were getting started in, in your new industry in design, like you were saying, you had to be, you have to be an expert in what you do, but obviously when you first get started, you don't know everything. Right. So what was your mentality just going into a whole new a whole new industry wow. after working in business? So that's a really good question because I see a lot of people who are just starting out and I think they think that if you like fake it till you make it, people respect you. And I actually think it's the opposite. Like if you roll into, let's say a construction site, right? Where everybody, everybody on the site is 
you know, in my industry, male and like usually over 40, right? So they would roll, I would roll in and they'd be like, oh, we'll just wait till your boss gets here. And I'd be like, I am the fucking boss. Like, and that window's in the wrong place. So like, (laughs) you have to have the knowledge to, in my industry and probably most industries, you do have to have the knowledge. You can't really fake it till you make it. So when I see, you know, men and women just starting out in our industry and they're sort of pretending like they know more than they do or that they're more established than they are. I want to tell them to just like slow their role and, and like, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to Google something when you get home. Like I would furiously take notes and nod and just be like, "Mm mm-hmm. And then I come home and I would Google all the shit I didn't understand that day at the meeting. And so I think it's okay to have a mentor and to have another, you know, someone in your industry that you can say, Hey, this happened and I don't understand this or, what do you do during this, you know, process or, or whatever it is, um, you have to ask questions. And I think people respect you for asking questions. If you don't know something, no one's ever said like, Oh, that's so dumb that you asked a question. If you, you know, if you're respectful of other people, they'll help you. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people respect you less if you're just saying like, Oh, I'm not clear on that. So I think I think making yourself a little bit vulnerable in no matter what industry you're in, it's okay. Um, Because then as you become an expert, you don't have to do that anymore. And then you can, you know, be a badass all the time. Well, even to that point, right? Like you don't want to say, you know, something that you don't and then mess up on whatever you're working on because you were supposed to be that person respects you and then they think you don't know what you're doing and so it's better to ask for help or say oh well what would you do what do you usually do here or whatever now I don't I don't do that as much but I think it's important like my mom always used to say to me you need to be teachable and I think that's a really interesting like statement because I think that applies to everything right like if you're in college if you're in a relationship if you're in any industry like maintaining the fact that you're always learning, even if you think you're an expert at what you do, you should always be teachable and then people will want to help you. Well, so at this point in your career, are you finding it easy still to be teachable or are there still things that you're learning every day in your business? Oh my God. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I think I'm more, I'm probably more targeted on who I want to learn from right? People that maybe I respect like so much in my industry or, you know, a builder or an architect that I think is incredible. You know, when they're speaking, I'm just absorbing everything, right? Whereas maybe, you know, when I'm talking to someone that I'm, that I'm not as enthused about, I'm probably not as absorbing as much, right? So now, now I'm, I'm more confident in, in my knowledge. So I would say the learning is probably a little bit less, but it, when I, I'm still open to learning from people because I always want to be in a room full of people who are smarter than me. I never want to be the smartest person in the room because that's boring. Totally boring. Totally. That's why I started this podcast because yeah. I never want to be the smartest person I'm, I'm ever, you know, when I'm having these conversations, which yeah. I'm totally not seriously. <laughs> um, but it's great. I mean, if you are, it's, it's boring because you're already, you're already around yourself all the time. So you might as well surround yourself with people who are interesting and can teach you things. Oh, absolutely. Um, now, has there ever, has, was there ever a time where you messed up, but you really learned from that mess up yeah. and looking back on it now, you're like very grateful for messing up on that because like, it's something that, that you can see uh, happening in the future and you know how to just, you know, avoid that. Well, okay. So yes and yes and yes. But I will say that first things first, you should be learning from every single mistake that you make, right? As a business owner, as a person, as a human being, right? So every time something shitty happens in my family, we always like sit down and we're like, whoa, what was that supposed to teach me? Right? So that's my like blanket statement. But when I first started my company and I had no money and I got a great client and we made this custom sofa for her, it was like $10,000 or $8,000 ridiculous. Right. And Mm -hmm she said she wanted someone to put fabric protection on it, right? Like spray it so her grandkids wouldn't spill on it. So I sent her this guy who I had heard was like really great and he fucking ruined the sofa. He like ruined it with the fabric protection stuff, right? Oh boy. But I knew these people were good clients. They're extremely wealthy. They're extremely connected. 
And I remember sitting down with my husband and I was like, I'm going to pay for a new sofa for her. And he was like, that's like all the money you have in the bank. And I was like, I know, but it's the right thing to do. Like she hired this guy because of my referral and I'm going to handle it because I'm a luxury service. And this is what I should do because I think it's the right thing. And he was like, okay, you're nuts. And I did it. And they have sent me, you know, $4 million of business since then. So like, while it almost crippled my company, you know, like that's why you have credit cards for emergencies. Um, that was an emergency. She was so, she and her husband, who was a, just a highly successful, famous attorney were so impressed that I would do that for them and that I would take responsibility and admit that it was, you know, maybe it wasn't exactly my fault, but it sort of was. And that I did that, they just thought I went above and beyond and they will never use anyone else. And I have, you know, worked with them for now the past seven years. So I think, you know, I think you use your judgment and you're like, okay, this is a mistake. Obviously it wasn't worth like suing that guy for $8,000. I've learned a lot about like small claims court and things, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I never got the money back. I never heard from that guy, but I know that that like came back to me tenfold. Um, and I get yelled at because I do that a lot in my company because we are a luxury service. And so if you nickel and dime your clients, um, you can't really be a luxury service. And when you're, when people are spending millions of dollars with you, nickel and diming is like a whole other level, right? So sometimes you have to comp a $300 mistake or a $500 mistake or an $8,000 mistake. If it's your fault, you have to eat it. I mean, that's, that's incredible. Yeah. Uh, I'm just trying to even comprehend this because you're throwing numbers out there uh, that not a lot of businesses even entertain in, in normal transactions. Yeah. But um, I just think it's so cool that you would do that. There's a, there's a phrase that a buddy once told me. It, it was, you are who you are online. So if yeah. I put anything online and I'm different than that, when they see me in real life, they're going to be confused. Right. And I, I translate that into business, right? So, totally. you know, you're a, you're a luxury service. You provide uh, luxury service, all encompassing, whether that's just the product or the way you handle what you do. And if you do, if you act differently than that, well, that's going to come back to bite you. So, yeah, uh, I think that's incredible that you have that you did that. You have to think of it as like, if you buy, okay, so let's say you buy a Chanel bag, right? And then like the strap breaks, which probably doesn't, but let's say it does. They (laughs) replace the bag, right? They don't make you pay like $40 for shipping. And they like, they might as well, like sometimes they'll send you a box or come to your house. They're awesome, right? Mm -hmm. And then they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. And they call you every day and they're so nice. So they should be, you spent like $4,000 for the bag, right? So if my clients are used to that kind of service, when they invest in a luxury product, then that's exactly what they expect from me. And that's what I have to provide. And so you just make your margins, you know, you allow for that kind of service in your margining, right? So, you know, you know, Chanel doesn't, it doesn't cost $4,000 to make that bag, right? So they've allowed for that kind of service and luxury perks in that margin. And I think that's what we've started to do. And we've built that into our business model so that it doesn't hurt so much when you have to take those hits. Now, there's a lot of ways I could, I could send this conversation, but I, I kind of want to focus on, on this point here. Yeah. Obviously you have a, a, a benchmark of product and service. Right. Now, when you're looking to bring on people to help you with your business, right. um, you know, bring people onto your team, how, how, what, what are you like the key things that you're looking at for that? Like the hardest part, finding employees is, is the, the hardest part because they're not me. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's not their baby. Right. So, right. um, when you're, when you're looking for people, I think you, my biggest thing is I hope they've worked in the service industry because those people truly know how to deal with people who are assholes and stress. Um, if you've ever hosed down like a bar mat behind a bar, then you can do pretty much anything. So, um, I love it when we have people who need money because they work hard. Um, and so 
I think for me, it's about finding people that, you know, maybe they're not wealthy. Maybe they don't understand what the experience at Chanel feels like, right? We're not all lucky to have that experience, but as long as they understand what a luxury experience feels like, you know, maybe that's something they aspire to, or, you know, they want to experience, even if it's just at a nice restaurant or something, um, that's what's really important. So when we travel as a team, I give my staff that sort of luxury experience. We only fly first class. We, I take, we take cars. We have, we stay in like nice hotels. We go to nice restaurants so that they can all experience that and they understand what our clients are accustomed to. And, and so I consider that an investment in my team um, to sort of understand the brand, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. Um, when, so this might be a, a really tough question. How, what's the biggest differentiation between what you do and the other top designers, interior designers in LA or even in the world? I think a lot of it has to do with, with having structure and having knowledge of, of, you know, having like two sides to your brain, right? Most creatives are creatives and they really don't adapt well to business modeling and structure and, and I get that. And there's so many other designers out there that are so much more talented than I, than I am, but they're not making as much money as me. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think what you have to remember in any creative industry is that it's still a business. So you can be on the cover of every magazine and you can, you know, have all of these accolades, but if you don't know your numbers and you don't know your margins and you can't make payroll, then what are you even doing? And so I think our business acumen, you know, my ability to read financial statements, to understand margins, to understand, you know, all of those things that I learned in, in business school actually sets us apart and it enables me to be like a husband favorite, which sounds crazy, but like I speak husband. One of my clients told me, you know, I'm the husband whisperer because I will get down with the budget and be like, all right, here's the deal. This is your house cost. This is this cost, you know, and I can, I can see their understanding of their investment in their home and the value that's going to bring to them. And we talk in words like that, right? We, we say words like value, investment, margins. And then when they realize that I understand those things and I care about those things too, then they respect you more. They respect me more. They respect the process. So I've noticed that when I speak at these conferences or panels or things, that's the one thing these really talented designers are often lacking is just a business acumen, which is like such a bummer that that's not something that's being taught. Well, I find it super interesting that it all circles back to what you said when, uh, when you were younger is that leaving business school right. isn't a waste of time. It's, no. it's, I'm just looking for another opportunity. Totally. Everything, everything's an opportunity. So I think you have this incredible mindset that actually really set you up to, to be successful and grow really in any situation that presents itself to you. Yes. Growth, growth, adaptability is huge. Uh, we talk a lot about adaptability right now, right? In this, in this business climate that's happening, you know, are we adapting? Are we, you know, how are we making money and making sure that we're sustainable uh, during this crazy time? So yeah, I mean, you just, you have to just keep looking forward, I guess. Yeah, well, you have this whole other, I guess, subset of skills, if you will, that tons of designers don't have. And that's being able yeah. to I explain mean, the numbers. Some of these men and women, like they don't even have a contract. They don't have insurance. They don't have like an attorney. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, oh my gosh, how are you, you know, how are your clients going to respect you if you're not even set up as an actual business? So it's crazy to me. I mean, there, by the way, there's like a whole business in teaching designers how to run a business, which like probably is super lucrative. And if I had like 24 more hours in the day, I would start a whole nother company about that. But, <laughs> but like, not today, my husband says like, not today. So <laughs> okay. Maybe when I get old, that's what I'll do. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, it's crazy to me that at a college level, there's people, you know, the girls that are coming out of college that are, are starting at my firm, they're still not learning that. And it's 2020, you know, so it's crazy to me. Now, do you have any influence with any of, uh, these, these, uh, educational institutions to help add something like that into their programs? No, I should. They should call me and pay me a bunch of money to develop a curriculum is what they should do. But, you know, like I remember my teachers at design school and to be really honest, I, I remember sitting in class being like, if you were such a fucking good designer, why are you teaching? Mm-hmm. So I don't think I'm going to do any teaching, but I would write a curriculum. Yeah, I, I just, I, I also have a uh, education in business. Um, I actually went to Arizona state. So still okay. pac 12 now, uh, pac 10, I think when both you and I went to school. Right. Um, but yeah, I was finance and economics okay. and being able to read a balance sheet and understand, uh, certain numbers. It's, it, it's, uh, it's necessary for anything that I do, anything. whether it be creative or, or straight up business. I mean, it's just shocking actually to hear that, that, you know, schools aren't, aren't informing their, their students of, of that whole thing. Um, it's just a whole other side of like, you know, and, and it's just a whole other side of, of the, the business that isn't, you know, it's just not like an important aspect in the curriculum. It's more about like, I mean, I spent a whole semester like painting a color wheel and I was like, that's great. But like, how do I fucking charge? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I know like about color, obviously, but can you teach me like what kind of insurance I need to run my company? So I think it's really interesting because in business school, they really lay all that out for you, especially like USC has a great entrepreneurial program and they give you mentorships and, you know, all of these things. And so I can't tell you how many hundreds of DMs I get on Instagram that are like, can you tell me more about this? Like, do you do mentoring? Can you help my business? And, you know, I don't know how to monetize that. So obviously I can't have a foray into that right now, but, but I think there's a need there. So once I figure out how to monetize it, then, you know, maybe I will. I I totally got you after this is over. uh, we'll, We'll go off record and, I'll give you a couple ideas. Okay, great. I love it. Um, but I, I kind of want to stay a little bit on that same note. Um, if, if I'm a, if I'm a young designer, say I'm coming out of college and I'm trying to develop a contract and I, I, this might be information that, that you might not be able to share, but, um, I share if I, everything. Well, if I'm building a contract, what are the most important things that I need to put in that contract? And whether it be design right. or any business. Well, first, let's back up. First of all, if you're coming straight out of school, the first thing you need to do is go work for someone else. Okay. Because you can't come straight out of school and roll into interior design and be an expert, right? It's that you're going to make a bunch of mistakes. You don't know what you're doing. You've never worked on a time frame. You've never worked with a budget. You've never worked with a real person. So you really need to like work out some kinks, even if it's just for like a year under someone else. Okay. That's my suggestion. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's the same with the, the women and men who are like, Oh, I built my own house. So now I'm a designer. No, that's not true. Like you as your own client is totally different than a wealthy person. Right. Mm-hmm. Who has never heard the word. No. So I think it's always great to go work for someone else. So the good news is while you're doing that, you can look at their contract. But the, the most important thing we have in our contract is just, the contract is just like a document of past mistakes, essentially, right? So it's like, it includes a clause, like you don't get to keep my plans because one time a developer stole plans from me and then never paid me, right? And then it's like, oh, you know, if we sell you plumbing, but the plumber installs it, then we're not responsible because one time that happened and the plumber broke the plumbing. So essentially it's like all of these steps of things that, that sort of prevent past mistakes. So, you know, a good real estate attorney for me helped me develop a contract that was sort of a blanket safety. Um, Also, you should find yourself a tribe of other designers or other people in your industry who 
are willing to share those kind of things. Um, and if they're not willing to share, then that's dumb because there's enough work for everyone. So you should share your knowledge because it will come back to you tenfold. So I think like find people who are willing to help you have an attorney look at it. Oh my God, have an attorney look at it. And then, um, you know, just protect yourself. Always include a photography clause that, you know, you get to shoot the project. Um, you know, so we have all these different things that, that we include, but those are the important ones of just protecting yourself, um, you know, as much as you can. Got it. Uh, that's incredibly interesting as well. Just you, you have to mess up to, to learn. I, I feel, you know, um, it's, some of the, the best things that I'm able to do now are totally uh, there. It's because I fucked up, <laughs> you know? And we always and say like it. in our office, when, when we make a huge mistake, like, well, I mean, when my team makes a huge mistake, cause I'm perfect. I don't make any mistakes, but of course. Um, um, you know, first of all, I'm like, Oh my God, you're fucking fired. And then I'm like, okay, so how are we going to present this, uh, prevent this from happening again? Like what steps do we need to implement so that this doesn't happen again? And so that's all you can do. And then you take responsibility and you apologize and you fix it. And then like now there isn't really a mistake that could cripple my business at this point. Right. So we just roll with it and we say like, okay, well, we just know that we don't want that to happen again. And, and, you know, you, you move on and you learn. Yeah. And I think another key thing that you said right there, I mean, is, is literally owning, owning the mistake. Uh, Don't try and, and, you know, um, avoid owning it. That will only get you into more mud per se. It's the worst. Like when you screw up and you send the client an email and you say, you know what, we made a mistake and we apologize and we are handling it and you won't be billed for it. And again, I apologize. Thank you so much. Like no one has ever come back to me with like yelling. Like they're always like, okay, thank you. That was very professional. So the problem is solved once that happens. So Mm -hmm you know, it's going to cost you money, but it's the cost of doing business. And if you're not factoring that into your, you know, your, your financials, then you should. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the next question I want to go with is why, why did you decide to go to Otis college in Los Angeles versus, you know, any other uh, major school? Oh, because um, it was close and they offered like this, they offered like a two year program that I could do um, where I would get sort of like, it's almost like an associate's degree in design, right? So I wouldn't, because I had a degree already from, you know, business school, like I had a bachelor's degree already. I didn't need to go through all those, like I'm not taking geometry again, right? So they have this sort of associate's like certificate situation that was a two-year program that essentially taught you interior architecture in two years and sort of accelerated and only it was very specific and so they offered that it was super close to my house and i could afford it so it was like all of those things just sort of wrapped up in a nice bow for me um and it, it just worked out that way do a lot of different colleges actually allow allow people to do that, you know, uh, more of like a streamlined associates towards something that's that's more. I think UCLA has a great program, but I would rather die before I go to UCLA. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) So I don't know. I know Long Beach has a program, but it was something for me that I was like, I just need to learn how to read building plans. I need to learn how to do AutoCAD. I need to learn like, you know, how to draft. So there were all these things that I sort of figured out what I needed to learn. And it was all in that program. And so you know, I had heard it was, it was a great program that a great architecture program too. So it's an art school. And I just figured like, I had all the other business stuff sort of dialed and I needed to learn like the art side of it, you know, the creative side. So it worked out. I mean, I didn't finish the program. I dropped out because I was like, okay, I get it now. And then I went to, I got a job with a designer. So, you know, I am a design school dropout, but it's okay. But like you said, go work for someone learn from them. Totally. And you may agree with me on this. I've, I've had people disagree, but I think more important than school is experience. If yeah. you can learn from someone who's doing what you want to do, that's the best education that you can possibly get, in my opinion. 
I think so too. I mean, I think it depends on, I think it depends on like your experience too. Like my husband went to Long Beach State and his college experience is so different from mine. Um, USC has such, their business school is just like so tailored and so focused on real life business acumen that I learned so many things. I had like fake interviews. I had, you know, we had all of these great programs. We had, you know, we learned about contracts. We learned about, you know, like, like you were saying, balance sheets, you learn about, you know, distribution management. So it's really different. And I think everything is essentially a business. So for me, that was, that knowledge was invaluable. And I happened to have learned it for, at college. It doesn't mean if I would have worked for someone else, I wouldn't have learned it. So I think wherever can, you can get that practical knowledge, whether it be at, in college or working for someone else, you need it. You need to be, you need, everything is a business. So you need to understand business. Got it. Um, now, when I when when I was telling you about the podcast, I always told you yeah. there's there's three questions that I always yeah. ask, and uh, I'm actually really excited to to ask you this first one here. Um, what are the books that you're reading? Okay. And what books do you recommend others read? Okay, so I am like a I read so many books. I read like one book a week because I'm crazy person. I don't really sleep. Okay. My favorite book is actually sitting on my desk and I read it every year and it's not really like a book. I mean, we're on video so I can show it to you, but it's called, it's not how good you are. It's how good you want to be. And it's by Paul Arden. And it's like, I don't know, maybe it's a hundred pages and it's $9 and I bought it at anthropology, which is really funny, <laughs> but um, it's the best book I've ever read. And it's all about just, uh, amazing things about business and marketing and just your life in general. So you should buy that and read it like as soon as possible. Um, and then right now I'm reading the book about the Netflix pe people, the, uh, that will never work by Mark Randolph. I think, um, he, he's basically, it talks about his experience with, he got out of Netflix right before it went big. So that's a bummer, but it's a oh. really, really cool, uh, book about the startup and the mistakes they made and, you know, just like company culture and starting a business and sacrifices and partnerships. And so it's very interesting. I like reading about other people's mistakes because then hopefully I won't make those. Um, and then I read like psychological thrillers sometimes just because I'm a little bit crazy. So the silent patient is really good. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, lo I love reading. I'll read just about anything except for like nonfiction. I'm not really a nonfiction person usually, but um, you know, I, I'll read it. I'll read everything. Now, are, are you kind of the same way with the psychological thrillers with movies? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. My husband likes romantic comedies and I like murder shows. That is so funny. Yeah. Uh, so my, my girlfriend is your husband in, in that yeah. scenario and, and I'm you totally yeah. in that scenario. She can't take, she doesn't, even though she's a nurse and like she sees all kinds of crazy stuff every day, uh, she can't take any, any movie with blood in it. She's like, nope. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what it is. Uh, I think, I don't know. I'm, I'm just maybe a little like crazy. So I like all those mysteries and um, like I'll watch a good rom-com every once in a while, but I'm, I'm not really a, I'm, I'm a murder mystery girl. I always find those the most exciting. So I'm right there with you. It takes a lot to give me a thrill these days. <laughs> oh yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Um, the, the next question is what, or I'm sorry, who are your mentors Yes. and what are your best mentoring moments that you either gave or received? That's a good question. So I would say I have three mentors like actively that I, that I really always turn to. Two of them, um, are both USC alumni, um, neither of them are in my industry right now. Cause at this point in my industry, there isn't really anyone that I think could help me make more money. So I turn to my business friends to help me monetize my ideas and expand my growth, you know, expand and grow in my company. Um, and then my mom is actually like a big mentor to me when it comes to like emotional growth. Um, and I'm not just saying that because she would listen because I don't think she listens to podcasts. So it's not even going to get me any brownie points. But um, I, 
my, one of my best mentoring moments is, is actually when I first started my business and I was, you know, we talk, I talk a lot about being authentic. Um, and I remember saying like to my mom, you know, I don't look like a regular designer. Like I don't look like the lady who decorated our house, right. With like her popped collar and her hairsprayed hair. Like I say bad words and I wear ripped jeans and I think it's okay to have a vase from target sometimes. And I was like, you know, <laughs> what if this isn't going to work? Like I don't fit in this box. And she was like, you know, Kate, what other people think of you is none of your business. And I was like, holy shit. That was like, so incredibly like brilliant when you think about it. Right. Like, and that is so applicable to literally every single person, every single moment in the world is like, just you do you and the rest will fall into place and you will carve a niche for yourself and then people will respect you and then that niche will be your niche and that will set you apart. And so, you know, remembering that what other people think of me is none of my business is, is essentially like giving no fucks. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what we talk about at our company on, on the reg. Um, another thing is, you know, one of my other mentors is a big real estate guru and he tells me frequently that, you know, you've got to take the emotion out of it. Like you got to take, you know, maybe I really want this design to work and I'm really passionate about it. I'm really excited. And he's like, you know, you have to take a step back. And when you send the deal or you send the fee or you send the, you know, you just have to send it and you have to take the emotion out because sometimes people want to negotiate sometimes that, you know, and he's like a good business person is able to remove their emotion from the deal. And I don't know if it's sexist to say that it's maybe easier for men to do that sometimes. Um, but that is something I've learned from him. And I'm often, you know, doing a deal or negotiating and I remember to like stay calm and be okay with the silence and let people, you know, just let the negotiation happen instead of, you know, just running to fill it or getting emotional or sad or crying. There's no crying in business. So there's no crying in my office. Uh, <laughs> And so that's really, those are some really like standout moments for me is just like removing the emotion. If you want to be respected as a business person, you can't cry in the meeting, whether you're a man or a woman. So, it, you know, those things are, are pretty, pretty sound pieces of advice. Were there any moments uh, when you were first getting started where you look back now and you're like, you know what, I really... I could have negotiated a better deal. Oh my God. Yes. I remember like my first development project, I was working with this developer and they were developing this luxury home and I was so nervous and I sent them, first of all, that's when I was doing flat fees, which is a joke. I'll never do that again. Learning, learning experience. Um, so I sent them my flat fee cause I was like, Oh my God, this is gonna be so great. I had like one employee. I had like no expenses, no overhead. And I sent them a fee and I remember thinking like, it was so much money. I had never received, you know, I would never have gotten a payment for that much money. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember they must've told, they like approved my fee and they must've told the builder and the builder came back to me and goes, you know, you could have charged them like five times that. And I was just like, oh shit. So, you know, he's like, they probably would have paid it. So, you know, there is everything's a learning experience right and so obviously i raised my fees later <laughs> but yeah. um you know you still do the best that you can do and and those people you know hopefully they they know they got me out of bargain and it is what it is it's interesting because that's another thing that they don't necessarily teach in school and i oh don't think yes. i don't think that's something you can totally teach in a classroom setting mm -hmm. negotiation. I mean, you could, you could put, you know, uh, uh, made up circumstances right in the room, but there's nothing that really compares to actually being in the room and negotiating. Right. Um, you also don't like, you don't know what your worth is really until you get out and you start to interact with your competition. Right. So like I'm, my worth is only pretty much determined by my competition and what's happening and what they're providing and what I'm providing and what sets me apart from them. And, you know, am I the only 
am I the only one in the South Bay that has formal architectural training? I don't know, maybe, maybe there's one or two, but if, if that's the case, then I know I can charge more than 80% of what's out there, right? So you have to know, you know, and that a lot of that is working for another designer that you respect or that's in that sort of same industry um, where you hope to branch out into um, doing your, you know, doing your research and development. I mean, although I still like, I remember when we were, when I first opened my company, I called around and like, I did my research. I found out how much every single other designer in my area charged because I wanted to make sure that, you know, I was, I was charging appropriately. So, um, you know, you have to do your, your R and D. Which is one of the biggest advantages when you are in a negotiation, right? If you know your competitors prices or you right. know the, the general margins, that right. word again, um, you have the advantage in the negotiation. You also have to be willing to walk away. So I have like, you have to know your worth and then you have to, and that's like something my real estate mentor has taught me because he also helps us buy properties and bid on properties and, and we lose them sometimes. Right. And he's like, Kate, you have to know what your cap is and then you have to walk away. And so that is, is really true in your negotiations as well. Like you have to say, this is my fee and this is either non-negotiable or this is where I'll go. And then if you're not okay with that, I will walk away. And I have walked away. And to me, it's, you know, it's business. It's not personal. This is what I charge. This is what I need to maintain my staff. I'm responsible for five people's livelihoods. So I, you know, this is what it costs and it is what it is. It's not personal. Right. Yeah. There, there it is again, you know, leave your emotions out of it. Yeah. No crying in interior design. <laughs> I love that. I'm a baseball player. Uh, <laughs> I, I played baseball in college and semi-pro and yeah, I mean, that's where the saying comes from. No crying in baseball. So no I exactly. It. It's true though. Like, stop it. I tell the girls if they have to, if they need to cry, they have to go in the bathroom because I can't handle it. <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, now, if, if you weren't doing interior design right now, yes. what, what would, what would spark your interest? Oh God. I don't know. I like, I still have a passion for business. So I don't know, maybe I would do, I'd probably be like, you know, a, a, in corporate America. I mean, I, you know, I think I left corporate America because I just thought like it was such an uphill climb to, to get where I wanted to be, you know, but I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe I would just be in real estate. I really like real estate. Um, God, those people make so much money when they sell luxury homes. Um, and then I don't know. I mean, I definitely wouldn't be a stay-at-home mom. I know that because it's hard and it's mm -hmm. not my thing. Um, but I think I think probably something to do with real estate because I'm I I think like you know you have a knack for things and seems like it's relatively little work with like a lot of return. So maybe in my next life. Well, or, you know, maybe, maybe now down the road, maybe, maybe down the road, maybe like, maybe after we get off this call, I'll just like get my real estate license really quick. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the South Bay. Anyone can do it. <laughs> Not that hard, right? <laughs> um, now I just had this idea just randomly popped into my head. Um, have you ever done a Ted talk? No, but it's really funny because if you follow me on social media, every time I like go on a rant, I always say, thank you for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> and so like I'll rant about like bread or like my leggings and then I'll be like, thank you for coming to my TED talk. So no, I should though, because then I could say, thank you for coming to my TED talk and I would be serious. 100%. Well, it's doing a TED talk is, is one of my personal, uh, top priorities. It's, cool. it's not just a goal. It's a priority. Okay. Um, but I was thinking for you, because there's, there's so many niche Ted talks yeah. there. You it's all about learning something. I think you've really got a, um, an opportunity to share with a ton of creatives, a ton of people, whether it be design, yeah. entertainment, whatever it is, you know, learning, the key factors in business giving like five or 10 like simple points in a, right. in a nice put together talk uh 
And, and obviously, I mean, you, you have all the experience in the world to, to share. Um, so I was just, you know, I'm throwing that out there. I like that. Like offline, you can tell me how to get a TED talk because yes. I, don't, I don't know TED, but I'd really like to get a talk. <laughs> totally. I've, I've got your, I've got the whole game plan. Send, I love that out. about you. Good for yeah. you. Yes. Thank you. Um, the, the last question I've, I've got uh, for today is uh, how would you suggest someone finds their extraordinary? Yes. Okay. So I thought a lot about this when you asked me to be on the podcast because finding your extraordinary seems really daunting, right? If you don't feel like you've found it or you don't feel all that extraordinary at the moment, which I feel like probably a lot of people do not feel extraordinary at the moment. Um, for me, it all, every time I was thinking about it and was like writing down notes and I was like, what am I going to say? What do I think? It all came back to me being authentic and being my best self and being my true self and finding out who that is. So how can you be extraordinary if you don't even know who you are, right? Mm -hmm. So it's going back to what is it about you that makes you special? What is your niche? What do you have to provide the world that no one else has? And you know, whether it's your voice on social media or whether it's your voice, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, what are you, who are you? And are you true to that? Because for me, my business just quadrupled the minute I sat down and said, I'm just going to be me. I'm not going to wear a pencil skirt. I don't even like pencil skirts, right? I'm going to wear jeans. And sometimes my clients are like, oh my God, are you wearing ripped jeans to our meeting? And I'm like, yeah. Um, and sometimes they like are in flip-flops, so they don't care. Right. So I think it's just, you just have to own who you are. And once you do that, everything just falls into place and you find your niche and you have find your confidence. And then as you find that confidence, you know, you find your extraordinary and all of a sudden everything is easier. Mm -hmm. Beautifully said. And yeah, so many, so many great things to take away from that. Um, Kate, I want to thank you so much for uh, for joining me on the podcast. Uh, you were a delight. Thank to you. Talk with. I, know I only said like six or seven bad words, which is like a, a low record for me, so that's good. That's a little <laughs> fucking low for me. So you know, I'm a little. Next time, we're going above. We're hitting double digits. Okay. I'll save those for my TED talk. Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me, Seth. This is amazing. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to my podcast. I hope I provided some insight and some knowledge that will ultimately help you expand your mind and your life. If you can do me a huge favor and subscribe to my podcast and rate it on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever your favorite streaming platform is, I would sincerely appreciate it. It will help me grow and will help my message get out to the world. So again, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I absolutely look forward to the next time I get to spend some time with you. All right, my friends, stay extraordinary.